scripture is Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 22. Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 22. The false prophet. When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, Thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you any one that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divination, or an observer of crimes, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God. For these nations which thou shalt possess hearkened unto observers of times and unto diviners, but it's for thee the Lord thy God hath not suffered thee so to do. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren like unto me. Unto him he shall hearken. According to all the desires of the Lord thy God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up, a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my word which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak, that, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. If I say in thy heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. If the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. The commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness, includes false witness concerning God. This text speaks concerning such false prophets. It is also a prophecy of Christ's coming. Certain forms of idolatry are banned by this text. Unlawful means of communicating with the unseen world are the forms of idolatry that are here banned. No trick of magic, of ritual, can be used to coerce God. God does not reveal himself in answer to the tricks of men, nor does he prosper men in response to gifts or bribes. Men must be perfect or upright before the Lord. 
God's judgment, we are told, is against the nations of Canaan and against all those who practice these abominations. These abominations, for all without exception, means of prediction, a desire to know the future and to predict it. One of the rabbis of old, Rashi, declared in commenting on this text, Thou shalt walk with him in perfect sincerity and wait for him. And thou shalt not cry into the future. But whatsoever cometh upon thee, take it with simplicity, and then thou shalt be with him and be his portion. Now this text does not tell us we are to be indifferent concerning the future. It tells us not to pry into the future. The purpose of all these rites that we have described is prediction, a desire to know the future and to predict it, to walk by sight. But God has given us a means of prediction which is lawful. We have two forms of prediction and prophecy in the Bible. One is that form of supernatural prediction, such as in this text were the coming of Christ, the great prophet, is foretold. It is, moreover, foretold that he will come to be like unto Moses, and in fulfillment of the prophecies concerning Moses and the law, that is, he is to come as the great lawgiver. We have many other prophecies concerning Christ concerning his virgin birth, concerning his crucifixion and resurrection. We have prophecies concerning the fall of Jerusalem, the 70 years captivity. We have precise and specific prophecies in Scripture concerning events. There is another form of prophecy. This other form of prophecy is that which is amenable to us form whereby every one of us can predict, can know the future, the law. The law is the God-ordained means of prediction for a nation to use. Thus, in Deuteronomy chapters 27 through 31, we have a series of statements which sum up the law and the blessings and the curses of the law. They give us prediction. They tell us that if a nation follows God in obeying the law, certain things will result. If they disobey, certain things will ensue. The law in every area of life gives us prediction, both the moral law and the physical law of being. Thus, if you put your hand in fire, you will be burned. That's a safe prediction. It's a prediction in terms of law. If you consume a quart of whiskey every day, you're going to be an alcoholic. And you're going to do harm to your health. That's a safe prediction. It's a prediction, it's a prophecy, prophecy in terms of law. Thus, 
the law is given to us that we might know the future. We do, therefore, have a key to the future. We know that when men are systematically flouting the law of God, the curses of the law are going to fall upon them. That inescapably a nation that follows practices that are contemptuous of law, economic law, moral law, civil law, religious law, that nation is going to pay. We have, therefore, an obvious, a clear-cut means of prediction. But the false prophets represent another God and another law. And their falsity is revealed by false prediction because their way is not the way of the only true God. Now when Jeremiah predicted the fall of Jerusalem and its captivity, he was predicting in terms of the law. He also had the supernatural insight into things because God had told him it would be a 70 years captivity. But apart from that, any man of God could have told Jerusalem and all Judea the consequences of their course of action. The key to the matter thus is the law. Where there is no law, there is no true prophecy, neither truth speaking for God, nor any true prediction concerning the future. And when Christians neglect the law, they are not only paving the way for their own destruction. They are also paving the way for charlatans to lead them. When Israel forsook the law, then Israel began to go to all these forbidden forms of prophecy and prediction of which this chapter speaks. And Ezekiel gives us a fearful picture of the extent to which precisely these things were being practiced in the days before the fall of Jerusalem. There was a correlation. If you make the law of God the basis of your prediction, then you're on good grounds. But if you go to astrologers or you go to diviners and talking to spirits and the like, to know about the future, then inescapably we're going to be deluded about the future. Today, of course, we are again seeing the rise of all these false forms of prediction. Today it's become routine for newspapers to carry all kinds of guidelines that are astrological. Recently, the uh, California Medical Journal carried a severe condemnation, and rightly so, of astrology. 
But in return, the astrologers could laugh at the journal that issued it, saying, the president of our association is an M.D., and go on to cite how many M.D.s they had. And if a clergyman condemns them, they can cite all the clergymen who are involved, and all the lawyers, and all the judges. Plus the fact that their best-selling areas for their periodicals are university campuses. They have captured the best minds of our generation for false prophecy, for false prediction. Whenever men neglect the law, they are misled then by charlatans. And you have the kind of mentality of which Napoleon spoke when he said, people will believe anything provided it is not in the Bible. In the dying Roman world, you have the same mentality. Rome was filled with astrologers, with witches, with magicians, with spiritualists, with every kind of crack, who gained every kind of audience precisely when Christians were most persecuted. And it is interesting to see that within the circles of the church at that time, in days when the church was under persecution, those groups of Christians that neglected the law were sucked in by the charlatans. Perhaps the classic example of the charlatan of the day was the cynic philosopher who died in 165 A.D., Peregrinus And it's interesting, in university circles, you can still find professors of philosophy who will publish monographs defending Peregrinus Proteus. He was defended in his own day by very prominent people in the government, writers, philosophers, and the like. Let us examine the career of Peregrinus Proteus. We have many, many such people today in the pulpit and outside of it. Peregrinus Proteus had an amazing career. Very early he had to leave home. He was of Greek parentage because of his delinquency. He wandered outside the boundaries of the Roman Empire into Armenia. And there he was caught in adultery and was given a sound whipping but escaped by jumping down from the roof and making his escape. Then, as he left that area and went into the empire, he was caught by an irate parent who took him to court and had him fined for corrupting their son. 
Thus, he was not only an adulterer, he was a homosexual. Then, after that, he went home and tried to claim his inheritance from his father. He figured by that time his father should have died. He was so angry when he got home and found that his father was still alive and healthy at a ripe old age that he quarreled with, with his father, beat him up, and killed him, finally. He had to leave home then in disgrace, running for his life to avoid murder charges. He went to Palestine and he found there some antinomian Christians and he became head of the synagogue of one of their groups, a rather heretical Jewish Christian group, and he became known as the New Socrates. After he had milked them, he went on to other areas, he picked up Hindu ideas, and he began to pose as a kind of new prophet. He wore his hair long and dressed in a dirty mantle because he was now above earthly things. He carried a wallet at his side with a long leather belt, carried his staff in his hand and went around in a very dramatic get-up. He had the murder charges dropped against him by giving the estate to the town. He was milking enough people now, so he didn't need the estate, so he was cleared of the law and able to circulate freely in the Roman Empire. In fact, the townspeople, when he turned over his father's estate to him, hailed him as the one and only true philosopher, the one and only prophet, a greater Socrates, and so on. He played the ascetic and the saint wherever he went, the great philosopher, and the contemporary accounts are very interesting. Thus, as he studied under a famous pagan ascetic, he went to Egypt, we are told, by a contemporary to visit Agathobulus where he took that wonderful course of training in asceticism, shaving one half of his head, daubing his face with, face with mud, and demonstrating what they call indifference by erecting his yard amid a thronging mob of bystanders, besides giving and taking blows on the backsides with a stalk of fennel and placing, playing the monobank even more audaciously in many other ways." Unquote. He went to Rome, where he created quite a sensation, but he became so arrogant, he criticized the emperor and insulted him, and so he was banished. Then, back in Athens, Greece, because his reputation was beginning to fail, since he didn't have any new novelties to attract the crowds with, he declared that a year later, after the Olympic Games, he would forsake this world by allowing himself to be burned to death, to show his contempt for life. 
the philosopher's indifference to things material. He chose as his site for this death holy ground, ground that was holy to the Greeks, figuring that at the last minute the authorities would prevent the desecration. At this point he miscalculated. There were enough powerful people who were ready to see the ground desecrated to get rid of Peregrinus Proteus. And so, at the last moment, since he had no choice and his disciples anxious to make him into a new god by his death, were pushing him into the pit, he jumped and was burned to death. Now here's a classic example. We have incidentally an eyewitness account of his burning and of the mob. We have a classic case of the charlatan, and we have them today all around us, in religion, in politics, on the radio, in the pulpit, everywhere. Peregrinus illustrates the type because of two basic factors that characterize every one of these false prophets. First, they are lawless. They are antinomians. Some of them may be more moral than Peregrinus was, but they basically have the same antinomian character. Second, instead of a zeal for the law word of God, they have a zeal for self-promotion and self-glory. All you have to do is to examine the church page of any newspaper on Friday or Saturday, whenever the church page appears, and you can see the abundance of such characters. The other day, for example, when I looked at the church page, there was a big ad by an evangelist who had in old letters the following words, and I quote, Jesus walked into my room and talked with me in Jerusalem, unquote. This is the kind of thing that prevails. But all those who fail to teach the law word of God are false prophets. Whether they are the flamboyant variety that go in for the parade of publicity stunts like Cardinus or those like this evangelist who claim they've talked with Jesus promise that if you'll come to the meetings at one of the meetings he's going to tell you what Jesus said to him. Anyone who fails to teach the law word of God is a false prophet. Moreover, this text tells us that the death penalty is required. That those who presume to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. Now, this is a very plain statement. Let's examine that statement. This is not the same as the medieval laws which condemned heretics to death. 
this does not condemn heretics. It does not deal with heresies or with matters of doctrine, but with predictive prophecy. Now, why the death penalty for predictive prophecy of a false kind? This is the law that is the foundation of prohibition, which we once used to have, of astrology and every kind of related quackery. Why is it important to ban these things? Let's look again at the statement that we made earlier. That God provides the way whereby man can lawfully predict the future. And this is the law. Wherever you introduce false prophecy, you're introducing a false law. A false law. You are subverting the foundation of the country. It's not an accident that whether they are astrologers or whether they are necromancers or spiritualists or what have you, every time you encounter such groups in history, you find them linked with revolutionary forces. Books could be written without number about the connection of such groups with revolutionary groups. Recently, for example, in the French Revolution and in the Russian Revolution. Wow! For the simple reason that all such people insist that there is another kind of law. And what they are doing is to introduce another law. A revolutionary law concept. A law concept which subverts everything we believe in religion, in politics, in education, in medicine, in science, wherever you turn. And therefore to tolerate them is to tolerate total revolution. And today they are not only tolerated, but they are propagated systematically. It's not an accident that although clergymen were not invited to the launching of the last moonshot space vehicle, astrologers and a witch were invited. It's a sign of the revolution we have in our midst. And those who deliberately teach a revolutionary law order are traitors to the existing law order. They are party to revolution. No society can escape penalizing those who vary from its fundamental faith. In every social order, as we've seen again and again as we've studied the law, 
You have to have penalties for those who vary from the fundamental law order. And if you favor one, you're going to ultimately persecute the other. Consider the tolerance today, for example, of the Chicago defendants who by their every word indicated that they were at total war with the United States. They were propagating a revolution. Let me add that most of the defendants had close links with astrology and other such rubbish. Now the Caesars at least were sound in their persecution of Christianity. We have to say that they were right to a point. They recognized that you couldn't have the Roman law order and the physical law order. One or the other had to go. Where they were wrong was that they failed to admit or refused to admit that their law order was dying. It could not perpetuate itself. It had no faith in itself, and therefore it was an artificial thing being maintained by bayonets or by sword. Only the Christian law order had vitality. This the Emperor Constantine saw. He recognized that Rome had no law order of its own. Therefore, to save the empire, he adopted and recognized Christianity. Today, by our recognition of the false kind of prophecy, we are denying progressively true prophecy. And all true prophecy, whereby man can planted by the rivers of water. Establish us, therefore, in thy law, as a people and as individuals, that we may prosper therein and magnify it. In Jesus' name, amen. Our 
Are there any questions now? First of all, with respect to our lesson, yes. Would I explain Edgar Casey? Yes. I regard Casey as through and through fraud. It is interesting that the all these fantastic claims concerning what Casey has done only came out after Casey was safely dead and they had established a foundation and started to bring out of somewhere these supposed prophecies of his. And a number of them which were supposed to take place, like the disappearance of California into the ocean, they have altered since they were not fulfilled. Now, someone who does believe in Casey and his cause admitted to me that the son and the board members of his foundation are about as sound as a $3 bill. This person still likes to believe there must have been something to the man, but there's no evidence for it. Here was a man who supposedly went into trances and gave perfect medical readings and cured multitudes of people, and that supposedly thousands of these amazing readings exist. Well, he lived a good many years and was practicing during most of our lifetimes, all our lifetimes. Why didn't we hear about him when he was alive? Now that he's dead and they control all these files and have the right to bring them out, supposedly typed uh, while he was doing this work, it's marvelous how much they're finding in the way of miracles and cures and prophecies and so on. It is interesting that lately even some people who have been accepting astrology and all this sort of thing are beginning to say that uh, Casey was not a true prophet because it's getting to be more than they can stomach the amount of nonsense that is propagated in the name of Edgar Casey. Yes. Well, nobody knows, you see. Whether Casey did or not, nobody can investigate. They control the thing, and they release what they choose to release. Now, I can claim to be a marvelous prophet if I have a right to produce documents that supposedly I wrote up in 1923, that I typed, attested by no one. And you see, I can produce filing cabinets full of all kinds of stuff. If I'm the one who produces them and nobody else can examine them. prophets in the name of the Lord, that God had sent them, the true God, 
and they were trying to predict something concerning the future. You had to reserve judgment. In other words, you couldn't follow them. Yes, but we at the same time have in all these uh, true prophets things that were fulfilled very soon. You see. So there was verification of their status. Very real verification. Incidentally, Casey and his group belong to this whole Aquarian group of philosophers, those who believe that we've reached the age of Aquarius, which is beyond Christ and beyond all the uh, world of law, it's a totally revolutionary thing, and the link of these people to revolutionary movements is very real. What? No. Uh, the interesting thing is that they use some people. Now, Thomas Sugru was used to write the first book on Casey in the 50s, entitled There is a River. And this is interesting because Sugru is supposedly a devout Catholic. And the book There is a River was the first uh done, as it were, in the Casey campaign, and supposedly Thomas Sugru had gone to Casey and been cured, and he was a devout Catholic, and so he was quite objective and was writing uh, an objective report on Casey. Well, there were several things wrong with that statement. First of all, Sugru was not a devout Catholic. Long before he came to this uh, Casey bit, he had broken with the church and was ready to dabble in all kinds of nonsense. The same is true, incidentally, of uh, Jean Dixon. She is not a devout Catholic. She is an Aquarian to the core. Goes for she is more a Buddhist and a Hindu than a Catholic in her beliefs. Uh, this has been a systematic campaign. You can go to almost any newsstand today and you'll find a, an array of books glorifying not only Casey, but a variety of other such people. And there are signs that the Oral Roberts group is joining forces uh, with these people too. Some of the things they claim that are in the Bible uh, are really uh, amazing. I picked up one thing the other night in Dallas when I ran out of reading, and I learned that, uh, according to this writer, Jesus was a case of reincarnation. Reincarnation, incidentally, was one of the main articles of faith with uh, Casey and his group, and also with Sugru. Now, what Catholic can believe in reincarnation? Yes. Well, I wouldn't call Bishop Pike a Christian leader, an anti-Christian leader, 
and I would suspect his wife can be put in the same class. These things are really an assault on Christianity. And it is interesting that the Psychic Research Association, which claims to be a group of scientists investigating this phenomenon, admits that uh, the tremendous amount of fraud, every person who dabbles in here, in this area that they have to deal with, is guilty of fraud all the time. So there's a, a basic dishonesty about them, which in itself is revealing. Oh, yes. And there's a tremendous uh, profit in this sort of thing. I've been interested in recent years how many book clubs have been taken over by either pornography or occultism. So they're pro propagating it more and more. One uh, bookseller downtown uh, has admitted recently that in another couple of years at the present rate, about all he will carry will be occultism and pornography. The demand for both kinds of books is growing at such a rate that uh, it's crowding other books in circulation. Yes. Yes. Ambassador College and Armstrong. Armstrong has definitely and openly claimed to be a prophet. And he has said the time will come when his status as a prophet will be vindicated before the whole world by God. But he's already been proven to be a false prophet because he bought land in Arab territory near Jerusalem from whence he was going to be able, he said flatly, to uh, carry on an amazing program of prophecy and prediction and so on and so forth. Well, you know what happened to that land and all his plans went down the drain. So he's been a false prophet on a, uh, that count. Some people have documented, and they, uh, they've taken time to document some of the so-called prophetic utterances of Armstrong. They are not in any respect orthodox. They are not conservative. His basic perspective is a one-world socialistic order, and they are British Israel in their doctrine. You know, I can think of people born in every month and every week of the year who have bad tempers. Uh, you see, we're all sinners, so anytime you describe any particular sin, you're describing any one of us. And if you ascribe virtue to any one of us, we're all ready to claim any kind of virtue. So when you say that people born under this particular sign on this particular date have such and such a virtue, nobody has ever denied any virtue ascribed to him. So, you see, it's easy to make it fit. Yes.
answer that question. First of all, you refer to Salem. For a long time we've been fed a story, which I have never accepted, that the so-called witches of Salem were really very innocent, sweet people who were wrongfully persecuted. It is interesting that a book has been written by an historian recently, examining the trials and the evidence of the trials, and he confirms the fact that there's no doubt about it. The evidence was sound that these people did belong to a cult and a movement which believed in certain practices. Now, he doesn't believe that they had the powers they claimed, but that there definitely was a group and the evidence was there. Now, let's go a step further and analyze what it was from our perspective. What was involved? The witch movement in Western Europe, and an anthropologist, Dr. Murray, has analyzed this from a strictly anthropological point of view, represented the pagan fertility cults of Europe. Their basic practice was to gather together in their meetings and May Day was basic to their meetings. It was their big celebration annually. The Maypole was the fertility symbol, the male symbol. The rites culminated in sexual promiscuity. Their basic purpose was a revolution against the Christian law order. They had their covens, or their churches, we would call it, which were 13 persons, uh, usually, or if it were a larger group, there were 13 in each subgroup. They were clearly a revolutionary movement. It is significant that in one revolutionary movement after another in the Western world, culminating in Marxism, May Day, which was the witches' day, is the big day of the year. And it is interesting that now that so many of the law associations in this country have been taken over by the leftists, May Day has been made into Law Day. But when they say law, they don't mean biblical law. So, this is the context. Well, in terms of this, you can begin to understand why Salem was worried. They had a real problem. They had a revolutionary element on their hands. And I don't see how anyone can explain away the connection between these peoples and May Day. And why? May Day has always been a common symbol of these groups, their common day of celebration, like Easter and Christmas with us. And you have this continuing association with it. You see. No, they were not. Mm-hmm. All right, now, is it persecution when you put a murderer in prison and executed him? Or is it prosecution? You see. So was it a persecution in Salem, or was it a prosecution? 
you see. Right. And, and this is the thing we've got to watch for. Because today we do have so much serious misrepresentation about the past and about the present. I was interested uh, this past week, and if I'm not too bright this morning, it's because two nights this week I never got to bed. I was in Mississippi lecturing. And uh, the things that Mississippians had to report about misrepresentation was interesting. One a person took me down one of the main streets of uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and said, I scared a northern friend half to death recently because we turned on the news and we heard two very prominent newscasters speaking of Jackson and saying that blood was flowing on this particular street. And she was frightened to drive down there, and I took her right down that street, and there was no sign of any activity, no sign of any blood, nothing. It was quiet. She thought that where there's smoke, that there's got to be fire. Something must have happened there, but nothing had. Now, this is the world we're living in. We're going to deal with this kind of thing a little later, because this is a part of the Ninth Commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Why our modern world, with its emphasis on liberty, has led to so much false witness. Significantly, close to that street was the courthouse near the state buildings, and the thing that thrilled me was to see the statue on top of the courthouse, the statue of Moses. The thing that amused me was, though, that I'm a state capital, and this is a big joke about all the Mississippians, the dome had a lot of uh, uh, boarding up around it. They were doing some work there. What was the work? Well, it was the great big eagle with a 15-foot wing spread. They were resetting it. The last hurricane, I think it was Cedar or something like that, turned that eagle around, and all the Mississippians were quite disgusted. It was facing north now. So, that eagle was going to be reset on its face to face south. Yes. This is a civil matter. say Deuteronomy or Exodus? Yes, Exodus 22, 18. Yes, this is a matter for the magistrates, and this is precisely why, because the biblical law was the law of Massachusetts. It was a fault. And of course, this is restated in our text. It is a civil matter. It is revolution against the social order. And this is hard for us to grasp because Precisely because we are in a revolutionary age, we have been told for a long time these people were just innocent people who believed in uh, little timeless practices. Not that they were revolutionaries. Not that they were trying to create another law order. But throw this fact at them. Why was May Day the important day for all these groups? And why is this for the revolutionists in our midst? And why are these revolutionists so closely linked with all this occultism 
and witchcraft. No. He would have no recourse because what they're practicing is a form of witchcraft. They are operating, you see, on not God's law as the basis of prediction, but the same kind of law as their basis of prediction that the witches operate on. The most recent book by uh, Douglas of the Supreme Court is a book advocating pure revolution. Now, in all his books, Douglas has made it clear that everything is tolerable to him. Witchcraft, cannibalism, everything except Christianity. Because he is in favor of revolution in terms of another law order. His book is a call to revolution. I've only seen one newspaper, one I picked up in Dallas, uh, the wee hours yesterday morning, that had a statement that uh, this man should not be on the Supreme Court when he is against our law. Perhaps there have been others, but it's amazing. The book has been out for some time, and uh, very little is being said. Yes. I, I can't hear you. really could not say for sure, except that uh, there was a case here in this state where the authorities intervened to protect the child and took the child away from the custody of the parents, where apparently the child was going to be sacrificed by the parents as a part of one of these cults. So there are hints of the revival of this. It was in Southern California, incidentally. Yes. They in Salem. They were adjudicated by a court, and this present uh, study uh, very definitely confirms that they were very fairly judged. Do you recall the name of the book, Gary, and the author? I have the book myself now. Yes. But, uh, the name of the author escapes me. I will be touching on the... Ma con yes. I will be touching on the contents of that book uh, towards the end of this year when we analyze some of these laws they have been practiced. Our time is past you, but one more question here. Our time is up, and we are adjourned.